Hey everybody, welcome back to Rocks Across the Pond. It's a curling podcast coming to you from Richmond, Virginia. My name is Ryan McGee and joining me as always from Southampton, England, our very own Professor of Peel, Dr. Jonathan Havercroft. Jonathan, how's it going today? Uh, it's going well. Yeah, we're you know early September, curling season's getting going. Uh, let's see, I just did uh, a WCF camp last week, which was pretty good. Yeah, that was interesting. You were telling me about that, and it kind of fits into the theme of this show because we are going to be talking about curling development from the grassroots level around the world as we're going to talk to people from the U.S., Italy, and Japan. Uh, But this camp that you went to is for kind of up and coming or kind of borderline uh, countries, right? It was kind of kind of an interesting idea. Yeah, no, it was a really good idea. It was um, it's called the Stepping Stones Camp. So we had three WCF instructors. We had Scott Arnold, who's head of uh, development and instruction with the WCF. Uh, he's kind of top level coach from Canada. Uh, he's you know. I think done everything you can do in the coaching and, and development world. So he's he was kind of the lead instructor for the camp. We had Ken Bagnell, who was Colleen Jones's sports psychologist and coach for Team Colleen Jones back in the late nineties and early two thousands when she was going on her epic run. And then after that, he worked with Brad Gushu. So he's got a lot of experience coaching high level uh, elite elite curling teams from a sports psychology perspective. And then we had Carrie Wilms, who, uh, again, is a top-level coach. She's worked with British curling, Latvian curling, I think Italian curling. She's coached a lot in Europe in the last few years. Uh, She also actually worked as a mechanic in Formula 3, which is kind of interesting interesting kind of wrinkle to her CV. And she was part of the Julian Jody Sutton rink back in the early 90s uh, that – went to the 94 Olympics and won a bronze medal for Canada. So three kind of fantastic coaches. uh, And it was a bit more focused than other WCF camps that I've kind of been involved in. So they they run a very large junior camp here uh, called Fusen Junior Camp that kind of has juniors from all over the world. And some of our juniors go there every summer. uh, And that one has like 96 or 100 kids in it. Uh, this one was just for national teams and it was only for Wales and England. And so what the WCF does is they put out a bid every single year for countries. And what they're looking at is what they call bubble countries, by which they mean countries that are kind of doing well in B-pool events and kind of close to qualifying for world events or perhaps just punching through and they put on these these kind of coaching courses to try to develop the high performance teams in those countries, with the hope that uh, a couple of those teams will kind of take off and punch through. So they've worked with Estonia in the last couple of years, and Estonia is kind of starting to punch through on the world stage. And they also did a, a course with um, New Zealand last year, and the New Zealand Junior Boys team actually took the camp last year, and they ended up going on an epic run of the World Bs managed to get up to the world A's and junior men's and then stayed up. So that's a pretty big success from, from uh, that program too. So I was there with the junior boys team and uh, they were pretty excited with the camp. So we'll see if that, that gives us a bit of an edge uh, for this season. So was it just for juniors or was it for some of the senior or adult teams and senior teams or what have you? 
So WCF, uh, yeah, so it was for the adult teams. WCF now kind of divides its world championships into two categories. I, I can't remember what they call. I think they call mixed in seniors participation and then mixed doubles, uh, men's, women's, and junior men's and junior women's are all like performance level or something. So basically the Olympic path is one way of thinking of it. And then the non-Olympic path is the other way of thinking of it. So, so mixed and seniors is a bit more still kind of still competitive, but also still has a bit more of the social aspect. So the stepping stones was geared more towards the, the high performance, um, High performance Olympic pathway uh, events. So it was mixed doubles teams, one mixed doubles teams from East England and Wales, junior teams from England because Wales doesn't really have a junior program at the moment, and then for adult men's and women's teams from England and Wales too. So, what was the number one thing that you learned at this camp? I got a few delivery tips that uh, I was advised. That they're basically what they called high performance. So, they're kind of little tricks that you you could add to your delivery once you have a pretty solid delivery. Uh, a little bit about release from a different perspective, which was useful, but I'm not going to get into just because uh, most of our listeners may not be at that level yet. And if you did it without a kind of a solid delivery, it would kind of mess up your delivery, to be honest. Uh, from the kind of warm side of the glass stuff, it was really interesting. Uh, looking at season planning from a sports psychology perspective. So that was actually, we actually spent a fair bit of our time thinking about how you plan out your season and what impact that has on your psychology as a team, if that makes any mm-hmm. sense. That one of the ways you build confidence is you basically say, okay, how much time can I give? And one of the big problems in countries with not much curling ice is ice access is rare. So what other things can you do warm side of the glass that helps your team get better that doesn't necessarily involve ice time? So we spent a lot of time thinking about that and different strategies and different warm side of the glass activities you can do. Awesome. So do we want to get into the interviews that we have today? Yeah, so this is interesting. So you went managed to get some of the international curlers and coaches uh, at, the, at the Curling Night in America. And we kind of wanted to cluster these three together because they are more on kind of growth and development. So looking at how the sport's growing in different parts of the world, partly at a high performance angle, but also partly at the club level. So who do you want to go with first, Ryan? Uh, I guess we'll start here in my home country. We'll start here in the U.S. And I got to talk to the president of Triangle Curling Club, Trevor Gao. And all of these interviews took place on August 24th at Curling Night in America in Raleigh. So Trevor is going to talk about the history of Triangle Curling, which started as an arena club and then developed and built their own dedicated facility and they've been really successful in growth and development and then what their future is, how they plan on growing more. Uh, So let's start with him. Here is Trevor Gao from Triangle Curling Club. All right, we are joined by Trevor Gao, president of Triangle Curling Club. Uh, Trevor, can you just give us uh, an overview of how this event came about? Were you guys involved at all, or were you guys kind of just brought into the mix after um, they decided to bring the event here? Yeah, of course. uh, The the club signed a letter of support to have Curling Night in America come to Raleigh, Uh, but really it's the the efforts of the Triangle Sports Commission that ended up getting it here and getting it all organized and planned 
Uh, Triangle Curling Club's main role in this event is uh, helping with volunteers. We do a lot of the officiating, we're doing Things like ice, ice prep help, uh, and then other odd jobs that the Triangle Sports Commission has asked, asked us to help out with. And what's this experience been like for you guys? We're on the, the last day of regular competition, and then they have sticks and stones going on Sunday. How exciting has this been for the for the club members, and how has it been embraced by you guys? It's really amazing. Nothing like this has ever happened in uh, you know Raleigh, uh, even. Uh, even North Carolina or the entire South, uh, you know, the, the Minnesota, the Midwest, uh, even the Northeast is, is way more in tune with curling, but it's, it's growing, the sport is growing, it's, it's moving farther south, and, you know, we couldn't be more pleased to have it uh, be in our backyard. Uh, so, you know, it's great for our members to have the experience and the opportunity to come see these, uh, t- these top-level games, but at the same time, you know, we have people traveling from many, many states over uh, to come to our backyard. So it's a great way to uh, share our club with the with the people that are that are coming that have never even seen curling to, to, to be able to talk about it and uh, kind of share our love of the sport. Has it helped you guys get the word out here locally that you guys exist? I know that that's something that we always struggle with is, oh, I didn't know there was a curling club in Richmond. Even back when I was in Oklahoma City, definitely, oh, I didn't know there was a curling club in Oklahoma City. You guys have a dedicated facility, but is that something that you guys still struggle with? Yeah, I think the, the trouble is getting the word out that curling is even a, a sport that is at least viable uh, in this area. So, you know, when you when you see curling on TV, most people think, without even checking, that, you know, oh, this is just a thing that they have in very specific places, but there's no way they're going to have it in Raleigh. Well, hey, it turns out, we got it. If you, you know, Google uh, curling and and you live in Raleigh, you're going to get our uh, our club as the first result. So it's not hard if you if you just think to look for it. But getting the word out is is just really important to, to let people know, hey, it's a thing that you can do. Uh, take us through the history of the club. Obviously, you guys started on Arena Ice, and then you were able to build a dedicated facility. Take us. Uh, I think you started after the dedicated facility was built. But if you can take us through the history of the club and how how the club was able to come together and get that facility built, if you can give us any background on that, that'd be great. Yeah, so our club started in 1995. Um, a husband and wife from Canada wanted, uh, were uh, moved to the area, and they wanted to start a curling club, so they took an ad out in the local newspaper, and uh, they got a cohort of people to come together and, and rent out uh, some arena ice for, you know, to start some leagues. So that was the beginning of our club in 95, and uh, the club has curled at a number of different arenas since then, but in April of 2015, the Triangle Curling Club's dedicated facility opened in South Durham, and that's approximately the time that I got into the sport. And uh, the whole mantra of the, the push for dedicated ice was build it and they will come, and that's certainly what we saw. The membership of Triangle Curling 
uh, was down to uh, very low digits until the 2010 Olympics, and that was kind of a turning point in our membership. It grew uh, up to a certain critical mass that we needed to build a dedicated facility and make sure that business was viable. Uh, and when the building opened, there were, I'd say, around 70, 80 members of Triangle Curling Club. And then within the first year, that doubled. Uh, so that build and they will come was certainly true for us. Uh, that's how I found the sport. And uh, coming in when there's so much growth was, was difficult because a lot of, you know, such a high percentage of the club was brand new members who had never curled before. But hey, you got to fill out leagues. You have to make sure people know what they're doing. And there was a little bit of uh, uh, tough, tough growth right there at the beginning. But that's when I came in, so I took that as an opportunity to really learn the sport and you know try to try to become as much of an expert in it as as I could. And I saw an opportunity at that point. You know the. The club is going to need some some leadership and some volu- volunteering, so uh, that's when I decided that uh, I want I'd like to serve on the board. And uh, sure enough, back in uh, in May of 2019, I was elected president. All right. So, how what have you guys grown to now? What's your membership at now? Membership is around 300 right now. Uh, that includes our juniors and uh, and adult members and daytime curlers. It doesn't it doesn't include people that. Uh, that come by for things like pizza and pick up or, or um, learn to curl, things like that. Yeah, I was, down, I was down here for level one instructor program, and you guys had your junior program going on that morning. You know, talk a little bit about your junior program, how it's grown now that you have a dedicated facility, how many junior curlers you've got, and what, you know, what, how that has kind of helped spur your growth as well. I'm really proud of our junior program. We have some excellent organizers and great coaches running it. Uh, we have Derek Corbett, who's on a U.S. national team, uh, is, is one of our head coaches for the juniors. And um, we, I'd say there's about 40 kids in all in the, in the two junior programs we have. One of them is called the recreational program, and that's where everybody starts. And um, it's it's not it's not competitive. It's it's more of a program where kids come on their Saturday, on their Sunday to to have fun, get on the ice, throw some rocks, and then those that are more serious about it will join the advanced commitment program. Uh, it tends to be slightly older kids, um, and they work on a lot of drills. They work on you know getting their their delivery great. They work on uh, line and weight and things like that. And then we uh, try to funnel opportunities for those kids, um, such as, uh, you know, junior bond spiels and putting together teams for uh, national events is kind of where we want to go with that. One of the things that I've seen clubs struggle with is retention. You know, you get the Olympic bump, you get, say, 100 people, 200 people out for a learn to curl. If you're lucky, 10% of those join the league. And then, obviously, you want to try and hold on to those and grow your numbers and keep your numbers steady until you get the next Olympic bump. What are some of the things that that you guys have done to kind of focus on member retention? Because getting to 300, I mean, that is nothing to sneeze at in the state of North Carolina. Um, so what's been the big thing for you guys for member retention? Yeah, there's a couple of things. Uh, first thing I want to mention is you're always going to have people that leave due to, you know, they, their life situation changes, they move out of the area, etc. And so you cannot ever stop uh, recruiting new members. You're always doing learn to curls. You're always trying to promote the club and bring more people in. And you have to make sure that you're inviting to the new people that are joining your club. 
as far as member retention goes, I'd say it's all about atmosphere. You know, people curl because it's fun and they want to do it. Um, there's a number of different goals people have. People might want to be competitive. They might want to just come and have fun on a Friday night. So you have to be able to uh, accommodate those goals. You need atmosphere in your club. You need, you know, there's a, a, a game on after your draw. You want to have that on TV at the club. Uh, you want to promote people having fun by, uh, you know, not having a lot of rules and, and uh, restrictions. Um, you don't want to force uh, certain situations on people. So I would just say um, provide an atmosphere that allows people to enjoy themselves and have fun and meet their curling goals and, and, and be inclusive to newer members and you're going to retain them. What about college curling? I told, we, we had a chance to uh, we had a chance to talk to Gordon McLean, who is Mr. College Curling here in the U.S. There's a lot of not just four-year universities, but also small colleges in this area. Has that been an area that you guys see the opportunity to grow, or is that one that you think is becoming stronger with the club? Yeah, I had a great conversation with Gordon McLean uh, early, earlier this week, and uh, currently we don't have any specific college programs. It's been on our radar. Um, you know, of course, we are uh, somewhat new, and we're trying to grow things uh, of that nature. So we do have the three main universities around here, uh, North Carolina State University, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and Duke University, all of those within about a 30-minute drive of the club. So it would be great to have some intercollegiate uh, competition going on, uh, some, some college nights. Um, and you know, one thing I heard from Gordon is that the college kids aren't quite as picky about the time that they're curling. They can, you know, they'll they'll be happy to take, uh, you know, a, an 11 p.m. draw. So uh, knowing that, it would be uh, easy to set that up and 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 get that get that going because you know they'll come in and and people will be there from a previous draw, and so it won't be a pro- there won't be an issue of you know, having to open the building for somebody, whatnot. Um, and then, of course, hey, the more your use you're getting out of your ice, the better, right? Because we're, we're a business and we need we got to make money. Uh, every, every hour that the ice is not used is, you know, potential uh, uh, for, uh, for extra revenue. So that's definitely something we want to look at. Uh, the college curling is, uh, I, th- I think it's a great uh, age group to get started in curling because, you know, they can really enjoy it for the rest of their lives because curling uh, is is so accessible to people of all ages. I guess what what's next for you guys? What's the future for Triangle Curling Club and kind of, you know, how did obviously you're not going to be the president forever. How, what, what do you want your legacy to be when you uh, give up the presidency for the club? Oh boy. <laughs> um, so a couple of things here. Uh, we're, you know, as we are somewhat new, uh, when the building was first built, it was very much uh, what is the bare minimum that we can do to start curling. So at that time, we didn't have a finished warm room. We have a secondhand chiller. Uh, we don't have any water treatment system. You know, a lot of these things that um, are nice to have, but not, not exactly... Good. No, good. not required to curl. 
So over the years, we've been, you know, taking uh, the, the the money we've been able to, to make and finishing the warm room, and we just bought a new set of rocks, and we started saving for the eventuality that we'll need a new chiller. Uh, so what I would like the future of our club to include is, you know, very uh, sound business model to be able to continue. You know, in 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 years where uh, maybe there's an econo- economic downturn that causes. Um, you know, some people not to be able to curl. Uh, we got to be able to, to to hedge those situations and and survive in cases like that. So, um, you know, that that's something that I uh, feel strongly about, and working to to get the club into a position where, hey, you know, we have world class facility and world class ice, and we need to keep it that way. All right, and then I've I've been to your bond spiels and had a great time, so I'll let you I'll let you uh, have a chance to plug your bond spiels and what you guys have coming up that people can make the trip to Raleigh, Raleigh and Durham for. Awesome. So there's uh, three mainstay bond spiels that we have. Uh, at the end of September, we have the over under bond spiel, and it's sort of like a five and under, but only for two of your players. Uh, the other two players on your team can be um, of, of any curling experience. Uh, so that one's coming up in September, and of course it's it's full now. But uh, we'll be doing it every year. Then there's then there's the mixed doubles bond spiel, which is of course a, a mixed doubles bond spiel. It's open; anybody can join that. Uh, teams have to be of mixed gender, and uh, he, we may be expanding it to 32 teams soon. Uh, we uh, it started out as 16 teams pulling teeth to get people to to come, and this year it sold out 24 teams in. 90 minutes. So we really uh, are happy about the growth of that one. And then our final mainstay is the Carolina Classic, which is the third weekend in April, and that's just our regular 32-team open bond spiel. Uh, it, it tends to attract a lot of uh, a good competition. Uh, there's just a lot of fun to be had at that one. One of my, uh, not philosophies, but one, one of the things I like about a bond spiel is not too much... Uh, forced activity and theme and things like that. So we try to just, you know, provide an environment where people can have a good time and, you know, you don't have to dress up, you don't have to, you don't have to play, you know, XYZ game that's not curling, Um, but it's, uh, you know, just an environment where you can come, have some good southern food and enjoy curling, enjoy the company, enjoy the competition. And then lastly, we have usually about one big uh, uh, guest bond spiel every year. So uh, uh, in, the, in the past, we've done the Rotary bond spiel. We've done the USCA, the USWCA Women's All-American. This year, we're hosting the Grand National Curling Club's uh, un, uh, five and under mixed bond spiel called the Kaiser. And uh, that's going to be over the Valentine's weekend this year. So we try to do at least one of those every year, uh, just because we have time on the calendar, and it's good to to you know give back to organizations such as GNCC and USCA by hosting these events for them. Uh, and one of my favorite things about your bond spiel, there's no shortage of really good breweries here in the Raleigh Durham area, and you guys uh, have most of them represented at your bar. Yeah, we're super, I'm super proud of the bar we have. Uh, all of our taps are we 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 keep them hyper local. So uh, I think we have like a hundred mile limit for the the taps that we've got. And then most of our cans and bottles also come straight from breweries in North Carolina. Um, and 
if you if you uh, if you brew beer uh, or if you drink beer, uh, Triangle Curling is a great place to to have it or drink it. Um, you know, among friends. All right, Trevor, thank you, and uh, I hope to see you at the Classic this year. Absolutely. So, Jonathan, you know, Triangle has kind of lived the dream there. You know, I've the, the two clubs that I have been a member of here in the U.S. have both been arena clubs, and they're a club that started out as an arena and then wound up getting a dedicated facility, which is no easy task. Yeah, and I mean, that's obviously the dream for every arena club, and making that jump is hard. We both kind of curled in Oklahoma and even from the get-go there, the goal was to get an arena club and we know people that are still working on it, but it's not exactly an easy, uh, an easy move to make, but it's good to hear from a club that did manage to make that jump. Yeah. And they're, um, they're, a, they're a fun club to go to. They're one of, you know, not by miles, but probably by time. They're the closest dedicated curling facility to where I am. Uh, so I've been down there a bunch, either just a one-day trip down to get in a couple of games on a Saturday or for the Carolina Classic, which is an awesome bond spiel. Uh, they're, they're a fun club to be around, and they're a, they're a fun group of people. Yeah, and it's good to hear. I mean, to me, the thing that kind of was interesting to hear is that the, if you build it, they will come model actually does work. And I've heard that from other clubs like the Denver Curling Club, uh, who made the kind of the transition a few years ago. The Columbus Curling Club was one of the first arena clubs to make this leap. Uh, the Fort Wayne Curling Club, similar kind of stories I've heard out of there. So it's nice to hear Portland, right? A lot, a, nice to hear these non-traditional curling areas. If you get a few people together, figure out how to make that really difficult capital investment just to get the curling in place and get decent quality club ice, how that really changes the dynamics for the club and really helps grow the game. Yeah. So if you ever get a chance to go to Triangle Curling Club for any of their bond spiels, I highly recommend it. And uh, if you need a, if you need a fourth for your team for their spiel, give me a call. I'll come curl with you. All right. <laughs> so you're going to get a few invites, I think. I hope so. I, I think I've got a team set up for the Carolina Classic, so we'll see. But uh, yeah, I'm looking forward. That's probably going to wind up being my first bond spiel in a while uh, when when that event finally rolls around. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, so Jonathan, now do we want to move over to your side of the Atlantic? Yes, let's go to Italy. Yeah, so we're, I got a chance to talk to Joel Retornas, who's played in a couple of Olympics and is basically Mr. Italian curling, I think. Uh, he's the skip of Team Italy. He kind of broke through when Italy, you know, got into the Olympics in 2006 when they hosted and did a lot better than anyone thought Italy was going to do. And we've seen him kind of progress through the ranks to where that's a very solid team there in Italy. So he'll talk about team dynamics and how he how kind of Italian curling has developed since 2006, but also some of the uh, you know some of the difficulties that they face with lack of the you know the lack of curling facilities in Italy. So let's uh, talk to Joel. You'll hear him talk about Italian curling and his own curling career. All right, we are at Curling Night of, in America, and we are with Joel Retornas. Is that, am I even anywhere close on that? I'm from, the, I'm from the American South, so you have to cut me a little bit of slack. Was I even close? Don't worry, that was good enough. Okay. <laughs> all right, uh, first of all, congratulations. I saw you got married uh, during the summer. 
Yep, uh, it was about time. After five and a half years together with my fiance, it was about time to marry her. So we're happy. We had a very nice wedding with our families. We had a good time. So we look forward to a happy life together. Good deal. Uh, you are coming off a pretty incredible season for you. Finished third at Euros, almost made playoffs at Worlds. Does that have you? Did that have you more motivated coming into into this season? Of course we are. You know we we know how how competitive we are and uh, winning some uh, medals at the Euros and performing very well on the world stage you know, helps to build confidence and uh, helps to, to make the team believe we can, we can achieve something big. So, of course, we're very motivated and uh, we, we started earlier this season to, to train and to work hard in order to, to have a successful season. So you've been with Team Italy for a long time now. How has curling changed in your country since you've started? It has changed that I used to be the youngest in the team. I'm now the oldest, so they call me grandpa almost, you know. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, unfortunately, we, we have a problem in Italy, which is we're a big fans of soccer. And that somehow uh, puts all other sports uh, on a second uh, stage. I, I don't know if you say it like that in English, you know. So it's difficult to, to make a sport grow when you don't have so many uh, structures, first of all, and uh, it's not very much broadcasted, so it's very difficult. But uh, Olympics always bring a lot of enthusiasm, and uh, we, we now know that we will have host the, the Olympics again in 2026. So we hope that 20 years later we will be able to to build a, be- a better legacy than we did in uh, after the Olympics from of uh, Torino to 2006. Have you guys seen the number of curlers grow at all since Torino, or has it stayed about the same? What's it, what, give us uh, an idea of, of what it's like in, in Italy and kind of what you have to work with, too. Obviously, you were talking about facilities. Um, what does your schedule uh, have to be with uh, the lack of facilities in Italy? We, we now have a few hundreds of players, but I wouldn't say that uh, the, the number has increased dramatically after the Olympics 2006 in Torino. Uh, the problem is we don't have the facilities and uh, it's it's tough because you don't have facilities so you don't have players and then people say you don't have players because you don't have facilities so somehow this kind of uh, circle has to be broken mm-hmm. uh, but uh, we have some very enthusiastic athletes now and uh, even though we don't have a lot of them we have more and more uh, people motivated and it's not like a fun sport anymore it's more like uh, something professional and, and um, we have three three players uh, in the national team that are now professional curlers because they they are in the in the army and uh, so this is what we need to develop our sport even more in the in the country you talked about uh, the Olympics in 2026 I know that everyone's focused on 2022 but Right now, Italy's the only country that's qualified for 2026. Does that kind of motivate you to stick around and try to make it to another Olympics, or do you think that you're that the tank's running low? Of course, there is something in the back of my mind saying that uh, it would be nice to finish my career uh, with another Olympic Games in my country. Uh, 20 years after the the first one, I, I don't think many athletes in in the world can uh, can participate in different Olympics. Uh, 20 years after the, 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 the other edition. So there is something in the back of my mind, of course, but now I'm focused on, on the Olympics 2022. This is my, my goal, and I, 
I made a statement with the, with a team that will try to qualify for that first, and after that we'll sit sit down together and think what will be the best for for Italian curling and for the team. But it's I mean it's not easy to to plan on a seven years basis now, you know, because curling is. It's taking me more and more time. You, you, you have to play in the summer too. It, used, it, it didn't used to be like that when I was younger and when I was playing in, in Torino. We were training from end of September to end of March, and that, that was it. But now we have, you know, uh, summer camps. Uh, I was in China in June. Then we were on ice in August. I was not on ice in July because I got ma- I, I got married. But <laughs> you had to take then, some time. Yeah, after, right? that was the only month I was not on ice. So. Curling season has has no end now. It's you you play um, all year round. So you know, making uh, a project now for a seven years. <laughs> I mean, seven years term is is a bit too much. We we'll see. We'll take it step by step. Uh, what are the goals for this year? Obviously, this is uh, the first year that you're counting the points toward the Olympics. Just the importance of this year and what your goals are uh, for this season. Our goal is, of course, to... I mean, this time we would like to qualify to the Olympics uh, by earning enough mm-hmm. points at the Worlds and not going through the uh, qualification event, even though we know we have a spot there already because we played the last mm-hmm. two Worlds. But uh, we want to be like the big ones, you know. Yep. Not always struggle till the end and just make it uh, uh, with the last spot. So we were definitely very motivated to play a very nice and very good European championship qualify for the worlds and get some points there in order to qualify uh, our country for the olympics uh final question you are one of my favorite follows on instagram because there's a lot of beautiful places in europe and you tend to find them uh how does raleigh north carolina uh right along those lines and this is this your first time here i'll tell you something i've been here before uh, okay. i was 17 years old because my other passion is uh horse riding oh, really? i ride horses i used to breed uh, quarter horses and uh, when I was 17 years old, uh, I finished school and then I came here in North Carolina for three months working in a, in a ranch with, with horses. And the ranch was based in uh, Lukama, close to Wilson. Okay. So uh, when I arrived here a few days ago and, and I was at the airport, uh, I could remember the, the airport and that was kind of a good feeling. But overall, North Carolina has been very good to us, great people, great hospitality. It's a bit hot though, but uh, you know, <laughs> if we play curling in August, we can't expect different. Oh, you should have been here last week when it was 95, 96. I'm glad I was in the mountain, in the Alps, in Switzerland, <laughs> training with the team. All right, thank you so much and have a great season. Thank you very much. So Jonathan, really interesting to talk to him. He's a great guy, uh, and that was a lot of fun. Interesting that even though they hosted the Olympics, uh, curling still hasn't caught on uh, in Italy as much as you would think there, there, there's a lack of facilities, but I know that they, I know that they put on a good bond spiel because you've told me how, uh, how awesome their bond spiel is. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting that all the curling in Italy is in the Alps, which makes so, sense. which makes sense. And I actually have, so there's a really great summer spiel called the Cortina spiel, which is in Cortina, Italy. So if you're in the neighborhood in June, I recommend you go check it out. Or if you're, you know, one of the 1%, you can fly over your private plane from America. You could try that too. But uh, it's, I mean, it's a fantastic spot. And so the Bonspiels are actually in the state, the 1956 Winter Olympic Stadium. And it's now kind of half encased in glass and then half all this old wooden stands. It's kind of completely a spectacular facility. And that's where they're going to have the curling 
2022 when Cortina hosts the the Olympics there. So chance also they'll play in a bonds field that'll be in a future. Oh, sorry, 2026. Yes, getting ahead <laughs> of myself. Sorry, Beijing. I didn't didn't want to step on your parade. Um, so 2026. So you've got you got seven more chances to go play in this tournament before uh, before the Olympics come. Uh, it's the, the site's fantastic. It's a ski resort, so like the restaurants are all great. The scenery is amazing. Uh, there's not much skiing in June, obviously, but it's still worth a visit for the curling. The other place I've been in Italy is Turin or Torino. Uh, there they have a three-sheet curling club that's attached to the 20, 2002 Winter Olympic site. Uh, the arena where the curling was back in 2002 is now just a standard skating arena, but the curling is now in a three-sheet facility just off to the side of the complex. Uh, and it's a nice club. It's, it's small. Um, it doesn't have much of a warm room, but the ice itself is very good. Uh, that's where most of the Italian national team train and play. And so most of the curl, the competitive curling is, is concentrated in Torino. And then there is, a in Europe, kind of the two big curling belts, for lack of a better term, are basically the Alps. So it's like Switzerland and parts of France that are in the Alps, parts of Italy, parts of Austria. And the other curling belt is kind of the Nordic country, so Scotland through Scandinavia, basically. Uh, and so the Torino Club is kind of a little alpine circuit. And the thing that's confusing if you're playing in, in Alp curling, for lack of a better term, is that because the languages are all mixed up there, you'll be playing a team that's speaking Italian, and it turns out they're from Switzerland or from Germany. <laughs> and then you'll be turn, playing a team that's speaking in German, and you assume they're from Germany or Austria, and it turns out they're from Italy, because that's just that region. There's a lot of kind of mixing of languages and nationalities. So uh, it's an interesting experience, definitely, if you're ever over in Europe uh, and want to give curling a shot, I definitely recommend checking out some of those Alp Bonspiels. And the pizza at both Italian Bonspiels I've been to has been like fantastic, obviously. So the pizza alone is worth going. All right. Uh, I doubt that I will be making the trip over there, but uh, you'll, you'll have to, you'll yeah, have to go back and, uh, and report, report back on, on how curling has changed in Italy since the last time you were at that Bonspiel. All right, I will do. I'll try to yep. get back to Italy. Take one for the team and go to <laughs> go to the Alps in Italy. <laughs> go to Cortina. Yeah, hard life, hard life, Italian curling. Yep. Uh, so finally, let's head to Japan. I got a chance to talk to JD Lind, who is the coach of the women's national team there in Japan, and we spent a lot of time talking about grassroots curling uh, there. Obviously, he deals with the high performance aspect, but. You know, he used to live there. He was able to give us some background on kind of how curling has grown in Japan and how they have developed as much depth on the women's side as they have. So here is Canadian and Jap Japanese women's national coach, J.D. Lind. All right, we are... Still at Curling Night in America here in Raleigh, and we are joined by J.D. Lind uh, from Team Japan, the coaching staff. Uh, J.D., uh, you've been with Team Japan for a little bit now. Some people are probably aware of your story, but if you could just give a quick rundown how you wound up uh, from Canada to the coaching staff of Team Japan. Yeah, so I grew up curling in uh, Alberta, Canada and uh, played competitively there for a lot of years. And uh, while I was curling competitively, I also coached. So I coached a 
a team at the World Juniors in 2007. And uh, that kind of led, started my path to coaching. And in 2013, the Japanese government approached me about uh, coaching in Japan. And um, yeah, originally it was just a two-year commitment and kind of took the plunge then. And I'm still there now. So it's, uh, I've been there since 2013. So it's been a while. I've been to two Olympics with them and uh, still going strong. So it's been a fun ride. And there was a point there where you were actually living in Japan and you were based there, right? Right. So when I first uh, took the job, I was living in Sapporo, which is uh, the, uh, the biggest city on the North Island, mm-hmm. which is uh, the North Island is where basically all the winter sports happen. And um, yeah, so I lived there for uh, two and a half years, uh, training there every day. And then now I, I moved back to Canada and I just travel with the team. The team comes to Canada and trains here quite a bit or trains in Canada quite a bit. So um, yeah, a little more travel now, but uh, it's nice to be home. But uh, definitely enjoyed my time in Japan for sure. What was the biggest transition for you um, moving over there and starting to deal with curling on a full-time basis in that country? Uh, well, if, definitely the language. The language is the hardest part. Um, you know, I've coached a, a lot of athletes in curling, but, um, you know, doing it in... <laughs> in either their second language or in some cases where they don't speak any English, trying to do it through a translator was, was definitely the hardest transition. But, um, but, uh, I guess outside of that, uh, you know, just understanding how curling culture there works, like the way that we grow up learning the sport in Canada, isn't necessarily the same way that, uh, people learn the sport in other countries. So it was uh, a lot of fun for me to, uh, I guess kind of learn how they, uh, teach the game there, how, you know, as kids, they, they learn the game because in some ways it's very similar to in Canada. In some ways it's very different. So it's been, it's been fun kind of learning where the gaps are and trying to, uh, to fill those for them. So that's kind of what I'm most interested in is what, what are those differences in the curling culture in Japan versus the curling culture that we're used to in North America and even in Europe? Definitely in Japan, um, they, like they, they teach the fundamentals basically right through so when I when I was growing in Canada you know kids always just want to play they want to get out there have fun play some games like you know it wasn't until you were serious a little more serious about the game that you'd actually like dedicate time to practice and learn how to slide straight whereas in Japan they just love like sliding through rocks and you know they'll, they'll sit there for an entire day basically just throwing stones without even you know challenging each other to a game or anything so um, I guess they, they look at it as kind of like perfecting a craft more than you know, maybe <laughs> having fun growing up. So uh, I think um, what what they have is they have a lot of very young athletes that are very good technically. They have lots of good skills. And um, what I've been trying to do is teach them kind of to round out their game, learn how to actually take those skills and apply them to actually winning curling games, which, you know, sounds maybe easy, but it's it's not in, in some situations. So. In what ways are the cultures similar? Because one of the things I've, I've kind of noticed when I've researched it is you have Hokkaido, um, that North Island that you were talking about, and it seems like it's farming community that has really embraced curling um, since about the 70s when Sapporo hosted the Olympics. Um, in, in that way, is it very similar to, to Canada in kind of how people latch onto the sport? It is. So actually, um, Hokkaido and Alberta, my, my home province, are sister provinces which is actually, I guess, more specifically how I got involved was the, the two provinces had done curling exchanges in the past. So they're kind of using that, uh, that partnership to, to bring me along. So what ended up happening was in the 80s when they actually brought Japan to curling, it was another Albertan named Wally Ursulak who actually brought curling to Japan. So 
a lot of the, the basic curling culture is very, very similar to Alberta, where I'm from. Um, and then obviously, you know, he, he brought that kind of base culture there and then it's kind of evolved until when I finally got there in 2013, but, um, they've had a lot of different Canadians come through that program. So, uh, they like to do things kind of their way with a little bit of Canadian help along the way. Are the coaches still called Wallies? <laughs> I, I was never called a Wally, but I definitely, every time I come across one of the old, uh, you know, the old, I guess they're, they're seniors now, but the old curlers that Wally originally taught, um, they all talk about Wally all the time. He's, he was a, a huge figure there, and they're very appreciative of what uh, what he he brought uh, to Japan way back in the '80s. So, how has the sport grown in Japan since you've been involved uh, in the sport there? Since I've been there, um, they've opened two new rinks, um, just dedicated curling ice, which is uh, you know really great to see. They have beautiful facilities there, and um, Sapporo, where I was living when I first moved there the, the rink was uh, one year old and uh, within two or three years the rink basically has no free time like it's there's people on that ice 100% of the time so they built a five-sheeter there and they probably could build two more five-sheeters and, and fill them right now so there's a, a big demand for for curling in Japan especially on the North Island where they're very proud of their their winter sports and um, definitely once team Fujisawa won the, the bronze at the Olympics it's it's been crazy like they're they basically went from you know great curlers to uh to celebrities overnight there and um when i'm when i'm with them in japan i can't go more than 15 minutes without somebody coming up recognizing them and asking for autographs so it's uh it's it's been a big change very quick in japan and i think that the uh the olympics has really shone a light on uh you know the sport there so yeah i think they're they're trying to make it so that they can get some new curlers getting into the program right now it's it's also starting to grow in kind of the non-traditional, just like in the U.S., where you know we see curling night in America coming to Raleigh. You know, Western Japan and those non-traditional curling areas are also starting to build rinks too, right? They're definitely trying. Like some of the southern provinces where they have no facilities have started like arena curling, like they do here in the states, which um, you know it's obviously not a you know the ideal situation, but it's but it's definitely getting people involved. Um, even down like Hiroshima and, and places like that. But uh, the, the big goal is, you know, people really want to bring a, a rink to Tokyo. And if, if they could do that, that would be, I, I think, the biggest step to, to really introduce uh, the largest group of people to curling there. So uh, there's, there's been talk of it, but uh, we'll see. Actually, they're, they're hoping to host the uh, Japan Championship in an arena in Tokyo, which would be a big step too. So there's, there's definitely uh, efforts to try and bring curling to more non-traditional areas in Japan and uh, I think uh, hopefully in, in the next decade we'll, we'll see some of those those areas uh, get get clubs. So for you are you you're not just with the Fujisawa team you're with whoever the women's team for Japan is right? So my job is is to be the national coach so yes so I, I would go with uh, basically whichever team wins the Japan championship every year to the world championship that's uh, the main role of what I do because uh, our, our goals are mostly based around how we do world championships and uh, the Olympic Games. But um, Team Fujisawa has been the national team for the last four years, so pretty much, uh, excluding last year, uh, so pretty much my, my time since being there has been with that team almost solely. So, um, so yeah, so I've, I've coached them uh, pretty much one-on-one -on -one for the last four years, and then this year now with Nakajima's team winning, I'm kind of splitting my time a little bit, which is... You know, maybe a little more work for me, but it's uh, it's nice to be able to kind of see some a different perspective working with uh, with their team as well. 
Uh, and that has been fun to see, the depth of women's curling in Japan. I guess you have the big four teams there now, but it's kind of different there, right? Is it the teams that are formed, Is it in a lot of cases, it's the company that they work for sponsoring them as a team, correct? <laughs> it is, yeah. So um, Japan, a lot of the teams have a system where a company will sponsor a team and uh, the athletes will be employed by that company and they're, they're expected to work when they're not curling, but that company will also... Uh, um, pay for their season and allow them to travel, things like that. But uh, the company, because they are footing the bill, mm-hmm. does have some say in, in who plays to some degree. So for me as a national coach, um, I don't form teams or anything like that. The, the athletes are free to uh, talk with their sponsors and form their own teams, and, and we run a national championship, and the winner of that is a national team. So it's uh, it's very much kind of, a again, a Canadian style where, you know, uh, you form your team, and if you win, you get to go, and uh, you get to earn your spot every year. Uh, what's the What's the next step for Japan? Like, how do they continue this growth? How do they um, keep expanding the game there? Kind of where do you Where do you see the sport going in Japan here in the next um, four to four to eight years, the next two cycles? Yeah, definitely on the uh, so my my side is the high performance side. So those teams, the, the biggest goal is to try and get them to continue to go overseas. Um, definitely people that follow the World Curling Tour have noticed there's been a lot more Japanese mm-hmm. teams that are playing overseas, and that's a, that was a big goal of ours is to, you know, um, you can be the best team in Japan, but uh, that only gets you so far. You have to go and you have to play the best teams in the world consistently, and, and I think that's been a big reason why our, our teams have, have come so far so quickly is bringing them to Canada, letting them, uh, you know, see what that, that level is at and, and trying to... Uh, you know, keep raising that bar, and then you know, on a grassroots level, it's just continuing to have these clubs be successful and find ways to allow the juniors to play because these rinks are so full um, with corporate events, things like that. A lot of times, it's hard for you know the, the curlers that want to practice to get the ice, but the clubs are doing a really good job right now of having um, after-school time set aside for juniors and allowing them to have time to practice. So, um, as long as Japan keeps that, uh, you know, that push to to have uh, you know those juniors play, I think we'll, we'll see a lot more great kids coming up and and team come out of that's here at the at the Curling uh, Night in America is a perfect example of that they're a great junior team who um, the skip was at the the World Men's just uh, just in Vegas uh, two years ago so uh, it's really really great to see. All right, uh, is there anything else you want to add before we get out of here? No, I just uh, you know we're happy to be here at Curling Night in America and I know Japan's been a part of this for the last few years and everybody always enjoys coming here so. Um, yeah, hopefully we'll we'll have another good year, and yeah, it's very nice to meet and talk talk with you. All right, I appreciate you taking time to talk to us. No problem, Ryan. Thanks. So, Jonathan, what's interesting there is it sounds like they have kind of the same problems in Japanese grassroots curling as we have here, which is access to ice um, for you know those grassroots programs and for the junior curlers. I mean, that's the problem in most countries. That actually actually came out of the WCF uh, camp workshops, right? Is that most countries that aren't traditional curling power. So basically everywhere that's not Canada, maybe the U.S. or at least parts of the U.S., Scotland and Scandinavia and Switzerland struggles with ice time, right? There's either not many facilities or if there are facilities, they're not open all that often or there's only a handful of them and everyone's fighting over the limited ice availability that there is there. So that's a big, big challenge is trying to get more facilities built. 
you know, once facilities are built, often they're sustainable in terms of being able to keep them running, getting members, like we saw with the Triangle Curling Club. A lot, you know, once there's curling ice available, it's often easy for at least club curling to fill that ice uh, and keep the facility running. But it's getting that initial investment, which in this day and age is often a couple million dollars to to kind of bankroll uh, the sport that makes it possible for the sport to grow. Yeah, and I guess the main difference there is they're trying to compete for ice, you know, not with leagues necessarily, but with those corporate events, which is, uh, which is, I guess, a nice problem to have. Because if corporate events are taking your ice time, it means they're probably giving your curling club uh, a decent uh, chunk of change. Yeah, and that's actually, to be honest, that's actually the model in a lot of places. So in England, it's probably 80% what we call rental curling. So groups who kind of hire a lane for an hour, come out, get a bit of instruction. And it's, it's a bit like a bowling alley, right? Where people are just there for fun versus 20% what we call club curling, which are people who curl, you know, weekly or, or regularly. Uh, and it's similar to when I was over in the Netherlands, it's similar kind of report there that it was the curling clinics and the corporate curling was most of the, the business there. And they really only had 60 to 80 club curlers. So, a lot of places in the world, it's a lot of this kind of corporate curling model, which is good for revenue, but does make it difficult perhaps to get the, the grassroots level of the game going. You know, this was a lot of fun. This is my favorite thing that we do, which is go and find how grassroots curling is going in these different countries. Uh, and I think it's uh, the best thing that we do on our show. Uh, unfortunately, Jonathan, uh, the little dude is awake. Uh, so I need to kind of cut everything short. Uh, so I think the, the next step for you is you are, you're coming to North America soon, right? Tell, uh, tell everyone about that. I'm going to Ontario. We're doing two spiels, uh, end of the month, end of September. So I'll be a Kitchener-Waterloo Classic and then the RCMP, I think it's called the RCMP Open. So two Ontario curling tour events uh, playing with my England men's team. We're just going over there to get some experience. So we're not, we're not kind of, I think, planning to win anything. We're not kind of going in with high expectations, but we wanted to kind of play a higher level of competition than we could find here just to strengthen our team and, and take a serious run at the men's this year. All right. That'll be fun. And uh, we've got a couple of interviews lined up that we hope to record here in the next month or so, which will be, I think will be very interesting to those of you out there. So a lot of a lot of good stuff coming up, and uh, we look forward to talking to you soon. Uh, thanks for listening. If you need to get a hold of us, you can email us at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at Curling Podcast. Uh, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Rocks Across the Pond. Uh, everything that we've done uh, exists at rocksacrossthepond.com, including a bunch of blog posts that Jonathan has done from kind of a coaching perspective. You can see you know, the difference between strategy and tactics, and he's, uh, he's got big plans for, for that aspect as well. So you can read uh, a bunch of, bunch of Jonathan's blog posts as he, uh, he'll be contributing to that throughout the season. Uh, remember to subscribe and leave a review that helps people find us. And uh, the, the biggest compliment that we can receive is when you recommend this podcast to a friend. So thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to talking to you again real soon.